Good morning, my name is Wes. I'm the, one of the pastors here at Dunbar Heights. Uh, glad to welcome you, and uh, we're gonna do now what we do each week. We're gonna take some time to look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means. Uh, thanks uh, much for your prayers. Um, for me this past week, I was one of those ones away and had an awesome time down in LA with my daughter, and uh, it was super cool. But uh, thanks for your prayers and that time away. Um, I hope it is uh, refreshing to me now because it's a Disney vacation is not a relaxing vacation, but it's amazing. So who cares, right? It's not about rest. Um, so turn with me, if you will, to the book of Exodus now. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Exodus, the second book in your Bible. Beginning a new, a new series today for the summer months on the Ten Commandments. So uh, if you found that, Exodus chapter 20, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Exodus chapter 20 starts this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's God's Word. May be seated. Let me pray for us quickly. Uh, just ask God's blessing on His Word, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you open our hearts and minds and ears to Your Word? Uh, accomplish the good purpose for which You sent it out. It will not return void as You've promised. And so I ask You to accomplish the good purpose You have in each one of us, whatever that is. And as I always ask now, Eternal God, would You move and govern my tongue to speak Your truth? Amen. Well, I can still remember um, the panic that I felt, followed immediately by outrage. Um, I had built up this huge amount of uh, excitement and anticipation around the uh, year-end dance that was taking place at my high school. There was going to be a cool DJ. They were going to set up lights and stuff, and my friends and I would be working on our dance moves to impress all the girls. It was going to be amazing. Uh, only to have my hopes uh, immediately come screeching to a halt as my parents informed me that they had been asked by the school if they would like to be parent chaperones or monitors at the dance. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I, I pleaded with them, like pleaded with them not to accept, and very thankfully they declined the invitation from the school. But man, I tell you, at 16 years of age, I watched my brief 16-year-old life just passed before my eyes when they told me that. I was like, immediately no. Immediately no. And of course, it seems silly today when we think about uh, uh, how I reacted to that. But, but there's some point in every child's life where, and it seems to happen almost overnight, our parents transition, right, from amazing to super uncool, and then they remain uncool for the rest of the time, pretty much until our 30s. Uh, and, and we just seek to do everything we can to keep these worlds apart. Uh, family life and every other part of our lives keep those things separate at all costs, which is why I was so horrified at the thought of these two worlds coming together at this school dance. I had a very clear vision for that night. It was going to be fun. It was going to be exciting. It was going to be free. And parents are none of those things. They are not fun. They're boring. They're restrictive. And so, therefore, as I saw it anyway, parents made my vision for an enjoyable evening unattainable. 
And I bring it up because we're, we're taking a break from Matthew's gospel for the summer months here and beginning this new teaching series today, 10 Words, taking us through the Ten Commandments. Because for many people, they feel exactly the same way about the Ten Commandments that I felt about my parents volunteering at this, at this dance. Basically, they have a vision for their lives. It's a vision that is about fun, enjoyment, freedom, good food, fun experiences. And while maybe even faith and God and church and things like that are included in that vision, commandments, rules, all that kind of stuff, no, right? That, that, that's something that makes that vision for their lives unattainable. Those two things are separate. They can't be experienced together. So a series on the Ten Commandments, I mean, some would say, uh, you know, I mean, we, we know God is a God of grace and, and mercy and, and love. Why spend all this time looking at some ancient, antiquated Old Testament laws at all? Seems, seems like a waste of our time. Or, or maybe some would even add, like, hey, didn't we just learn in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus came to fulfill the law. And then Paul tells us, uh, Romans chapter 6, we're no longer under the law, but under grace. So, so why not focus our time and attention more on our present New Testament, New Covenant understanding of our relationship with God through Jesus and kind of just skip the history lesson from ancient Israel. And, and I get it. I, I honestly, I understand that reaction. I, I can resonate with that entirely. The problem is, I believe that reaction is based on a flawed understanding of what the Ten Commandments actually are and therefore misses their relevance as well as the importance they still very much have to our lives today. I mean, I've read a lot of different authors over the past few weeks uh, preparing uh, for this series, uh, commenting on the continued importance and value of the Ten Commandments for us still today. But the, the, I think Alec Matir summarizes this best when he writes this, quote, The law of God reflects the character of God. It is the likeness of God expressed in precepts. And therefore, obedience to the law of the Lord triggers in us the image of God, which is our real nature. In other words, we live truly human life when we obey the law of the Lord. And then he concludes like this. This is the way we are to think of the Ten Commandments, not as cramping restrictions on the fullness of life that we might otherwise have enjoyed, but as the very gateway to the fullness we seek. We'll see if you agree with that by the end of this series. So, so his point is this. If, if Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is right, and we truly are made in the image and likeness of God, then living according to these Ten Commandments, which express God's nature and character, that calls us into fullness. That calls us into fun, enjoyment, freedom, all that, that we're all seeking rather than restricting it in any way. We, we live according to our true nature when we live according to these commandments. And it's that fullness, it's that fullness of life that the Ten Commandments are actually inviting us into that I want to unpack for us over the next ten weeks. We're going to look at how each commandment reveals the character of God and then how altogether these commandments call us out of the self-destructive ways of life that we so often believe will lead to fullness and sets us on the course to actually experiencing it. And the very first command that I want to look at together with us, uh, or together uh, as a group here, you see in verse 3 of our passage. Look there with me if you still have your scripture open. The first 
commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, there's actually a lot to unpack there, uh, uh, just in that simple, otherwise completely straightforward command. And interestingly, there's actually a lot to unpack in the prologue to all the commandments there in verse 1 and 2. And because of that, I think we often... Ten Commandments, we just kind of jump to like number one. But I think because of the importance and significance of the, the prologue as well, we're actually going to start because to understand the commandments individually and collectively, we need to understand what the prologue says. We're going to actually start there. I want to begin there and start by looking at the law of liberty. And then we'll come to the first commandment itself and talk about a call to fidelity. So... The law of liberty and a call to fidelity. That's kind of, we're going to kind of break up our time in this passage today. So if you closed your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, open it again if you don't have it already to that passage. Follow along as we jump into this series today. But very quickly, just before we do that, I want to just give us two kind of quick clarifications, two quick observations before we do that as it relates to this series as a whole, just so we don't get off on the wrong foot before we even begin. The first is to answer the question that some of you have perhaps already been asking uh, since we've been talking about this series. Why would you call it 10 words um, and not 10 commandments? That seems weird. Is that a typo that somebody didn't catch? No. The simple answer is what we see in verse 1, if you look there with me, uh, where it says, Then God spoke all these words, not all these commandments, all these words. And so what, what we see translated as commandments throughout Exodus is actually the Hebrew word davar, which means words or statements or utterances. So, I mean, commandments certainly fits within that, but it's a very particular word, implying here the verbal spoken nature of these commandments by God himself. And it's also the word that was used to describe uh, uh, agreements in treaties, uh, not necessarily commandments themselves. So there, there, there's play in there, but very often it's that word, which means words, utterances, not necessarily commandments. So that's why we call it 10 words. Second, I want to say a quick word about obedience to the law and what that means for us as followers of Jesus today. Because yes, as we said, Jesus did come and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That's, that's the whole reason we, we celebrate what Jesus has done on our behalf. And as Paul said, yes, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. Yes, but what's important to say about that is that what Jesus freed us from is not at all the need to obey God anymore. No, he, he freed us from the need to have to follow the law perfectly in order to be in right relationship with him. That's what we were freed from. So, so there is still a, a sense of obedience to the law that is required even for a follower of Jesus today. Additionally, it's also important to know that what we often speak of, like broadly speaking, uh, as the law of God, people talk about the Old Testament law or, or God's law, is actually... Uh, uh, something that is divided up into three unique or individual categories. We just think of it as one big lump sum thing, but the law of God is actually divided into three categories. You've got ceremonial law, civil law, and then the moral law. Those are the three types of law that are included within what we, broadly speaking, call the law of God. So ceremonial law, 
Ceremonial laws had to do with temple worship, requirements for priests, the various sacrifices offered in the temple, laws which became obsolete in the coming of Jesus because he provided the one sacrifice for the sins of the world for all time. So, so making a temple sacrifice, worshiping in the temple in a specific place, now obsolete. We don't need to do that anymore. So the ceremonial laws have been made obsolete in the coming of Jesus. So that's ceremonial civil laws. Civil laws had to do with laws laid down by God uh, as to Israel's national identity. So you had things like circumcision, uh, dietary laws, land use regulations. These were things that were made up in the civil law. Again, these were laws that became obsolete in the coming of Jesus as well. We read about this specifically in the book of Acts. As Gentiles are included into the church, uh, these are non-Jewish people, so now a specific Jewish identity is no longer what makes up the people of God specifically. And so these laws now become obsolete for God's people. But the moral law, this third category of law included within the law, is actually what we have contained here in summary form in the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. And as I trust you'd already agree, the coming of Jesus did not make commandments uh, not to murder, not to lie, not to lust, uh, worship, worship idols, did not make those commandments obsolete. Right? No, the, the moral law of God is something that actually endures through all times and generations, even if Jesus did take the punishment for our repeated failures to obey it. And, 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 I, and I mention that clarification in particular because uh, uh, a charge that's often leveled against the church today, it's often presented as a kind of, ha I got you argument, is that the church is, uh, we're inconsistent in the way that we uh, approach the Bible. That we just kind of like to pick and choose which laws we follow and which we don't, which things we want to highlight and which things we don't, and so we're being inconsistent. People say, well, you know, you say you follow the Bible, but uh, do you wear clothing with mixed cloth? Well, you don't really follow the law, do you? Uh, you're just kind of picking and choosing according to your own preference. And do you know what? I mean, to be fair, the church has done that, actually. We have picked and choose to some degree. I mean, uh, examples, condemning the, the girl who shows up at youth group with maybe too tight a t-shirt and yet saying nothing about all, all the lustful gazes of everyone looking at her. We're just kind of focusing on, oh, well, yeah, you need to be dressing more appropriately or, or focusing in and, and condemning homosexuality. It's like, that's the thing. And this is what the Bible says about this, uh, turning a blind eye to what the Bible says about pride, lust, uh, greed, sexual immorality, things all present within the church. We focus in on one thing in particular, highlight that. That's what the Bible says, and we seem to just turn a blind eye to things like love your neighbor uh, and not doing it consistently. So we have been inconsistent. But my point here, in particularly helping us understand these three categories, is to say, hey, it's not inconsistent at all for the church to continue to try to abide by the moral law, because the moral law continues to this day. So holding to a biblical sexual ethic. That's not inconsistent, but eating shellfish and clothing mixed with mixed clothing, with, with, mixed, with mixed clothes or mixed fibers, that, that's incons that would be inconsistent. We don't need to hold to that. That's been fulfilled. So I, I highlight that because, again, it's often brought up. It's often kind of put out there. It's just you don't, you're not consistent. It is consistent because the moral law, what we have contained here in the Ten Commandments, is actually enduring for all time. So it's entirely consistent for the church to do that. So, 
with those provisos, clarifications in place. Let's look first now at the law of liberty. The law of liberty. So again, I'm drawing this section from the prologue to all the commandments that you have there in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me if you still have your Bible open. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, there's honestly so much we could say about that already. We could do the whole message just on this opening in particular. But a few key things that I want to highlight. Look, first of all, he says, God spoke these words. God spoke these ten words or commandments, which is interesting because I don't know about you, but whenever I hear about the ten commandments, the image that immediately comes up to my mind is what? Is, is Moses coming down with those two tablets with the commandments written on them. That's what I often think immediately of when I'm talking about ten commandments. And yet, Look, what we see here is that from the text is that long before God inscribed words on stone tablets, he spoke them directly to his people. God spoke these words, which, which I think makes these words incredibly unique, incredibly special, because God, yeah, he speaks to his people all throughout the Old Testament, right? He speaks to his prophets, thus saith the Lord. They're telling God's words to other people. And then we read about in Hebrews, uh, after all the prophets, it says, Hebrews 1, God spoke to us through his son. So we have all that. And yet, look at this. In Exodus 20, you have God the Father at the request of his people, because they had asked, we want to hear from God ourselves, as well as to establish their validity, God speaking these ten words himself. He speaks them to his people. Which ends up being kind of a funny experience, because uh, although they had asked for God to speak to him, the people of Israel, apparently the experience was so terrifying, you can read about this in Exodus 19, the whole thing was so terrifying that following that, the people were like, Mm, you know what, Moses, from now on, I think it's good. I think it's good if you just talk to God and tell us what he says. Uh, we, we can't handle actually hearing from him ourselves, so we're good with that from now on. The point to note here, though, is that these ten words, they're spoken directly by God himself, not, not given through Moses. Second, note that God uses his covenant name, Yahweh, that he gave to Moses from the burning bush when he speaks these ten words. Okay? Uh, that, that's what our English Bibles are signifying. Whenever they write the name Lord in all caps, that's signifying the divine name Yahweh. It's the name that, that both reveals the character of God, Yahweh, which means I am, I am the, the self-existent one, not in reference to anything else, as well as the fact that he is, it's, it's the name that God uses in connection to his promise to uh, rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. So it's all in connection with God's promise and his nature and identity. He says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Next, he says, he is their God. I am the Lord, your God. Meaning that although the people of Israel, they are his by nature of his having created them and rescued them out of slavery. Look at this. He is also theirs. I am the Lord, your God. A statement that's going to have particular relevance in our next point. Finally, he is the God who has already done everything in order to secure their rescue and redemption. Revealing himself as the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
And if you're not seeing it yet, if, if the penny hasn't dropped yet, let me just state plainly why this prologue to the Ten Words is so profound and why it is actually entirely unique in any of the world religions. Because as the sovereign, self-existent God of the universe, the one who made everyone and everything in it, what God could have said, and maybe what he should have said, is, I am the Lord your God. Rule number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Rule number two, like he, he could have just said, I'm God, so obey me. Or, I'm your God, and, and this is how you appease me. This is how you earn my acceptance and approval. But look, now, do you see it? The entire basis of the law, how it starts, isn't earning our rescue, isn't about earning God's approval through obedience. It actually doesn't start with the law at all. It doesn't start with anything that we're supposed to do. It starts with what God has done. And then calls us to obedience. It's, it's obedience to the, to the God who has already accomplished your rescue, who has already welcomed you as his own. And man, if that's not like a statement of the gospel, like already just kind of encapsulated in the message itself, I don't know what it is. I mean, free, unmerited acceptance from God made available to you and to me and to all who will simply come at infinite cost to God himself in the death of his son. He's done everything. The work is already accomplished. Which means, look, what the prologue to the law is telling us is that the foundation upon which the law of God is built is grace, not judgment. Tim Keller put it this way so well. He said, do you realize it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? Same thing here. Same thing here. Our redemption is not in response to our obedience. Our obedience is in response, it's a grateful response to a God who has already redeemed us. So hopefully you can see from that, like that's why I refer to the law of God as a law of liberty. It's a law based on freedom from slavery that's already been accomplished rather than a law enslaving us to rules whereby we try to earn our freedom. That's the way the whole law begins with what God has already done for you. That's what comes first. So, understanding that, the last thing I want to look at together with you is this very first word of God's ten words. Again, I think revealing his character to us as well as calling us into the fullness of life he intended. And a word which I believe ultimately is a call to fidelity. It's a call to fidelity. So again, the word or the commandment itself here in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Which, while mostly straightforward, uh, could actually raise a few questions uh, as you read that when you come to that. First of all, for example, when he makes reference to other gods, is God saying that there's actually a number of different choices vying for the God of the universe title? Kind of like different cell phone companies all vying for market superiority and, and he demands to be chosen first among all those other choices? Is that what he's saying? Well, no. Uh, uh, the, God is not trying to promote himself as the best of any number of good options. The Bible is clear. that There is one God who is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over all things. But if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know there are absolutely other things that are vying for that title in your life. Uh, whether it's other religions saying, like, this is the true God, that follow this God, or as we saw a few weeks ago in the parable of the sower, Good gifts from God that we elevate to the status of God in our lives, that we try to ask Him to, Jesus to share ownership of our life with. So there's absolutely things vying for that title of, of God in your life. 
And so as it relates to other religions in particular, I think it makes perfect sense that God would say to his people, having just come out of a polytheistic society of Egypt and now heading directly into another one, the land of Canaan, to say to them, I have no other gods before me. He, he understands the danger, the allure of these false gods vying for control of the hearts of his people. And so he calls them to fidelity. He calls them to faithful worship of him alone. If you look in uh, Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul uh, writes these words. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not gods. Which I think kind of gives us a little bit broader picture of what we're talking about here, by what God means when he talks about other gods in this first word. It could be those false gods of those other religions that are trying to enslave us and say, follow me, not that's not the real God, this is the real God. Or again, the good things that we elevate to God's status and ask God to share control of our lives with. These are, these are the gods that we are not to have before him. And what does God mean by before him? No other gods before me. Well, the literal Hebrew translation means before my face or in my presence, which leads some people to believe that what God meant by this word is simply his people are not to bring um, symbols or practices of other religions into the tabernacle or the temple as they worship him. And, I mean, I have no doubt, yeah, we shouldn't do that. I think that's included in there. But when you remember the words of David in Psalm 139, which reminds us God's presence is not confined to a single place. Remember, David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? Means that the command clearly has a much more comprehensive meaning in view. That is, at no time, at no place, are we to offer worship to anything else, anyone else, but God alone. It's a call to fidelity. But understanding that now, how does this first word reveal the character of God? And how does it call us into the fullness of life? Well, first, what I believe it really reveals about the character of God is that he's relational. God is relational, and this reveals to us the depth of relationship that he desires to have with us. That's why I call this word a call to fidelity in particular. And, and we've talked about this uh, a number of times over the years, but I, I, I want to remind you or maybe inform you if you didn't know already. Throughout the Bible, one of the primary metaphors that God uses to describe his relationship with his people or with his church is marriage. That's one of the primary metaphors that God uses, this exclusive covenant relationship with someone else, forsaking all others, keeping myself only unto you, uh, as the traditional marriage vows put it. But, but do you see, this takes us back to what we saw a moment ago in the prologue where God described himself to his people as their God, right? I am the Lord, your God. For again, the staggering reality being communicated there is that not only do the people of Israel belong to God by nature of his creating them and having rescued them out of slavery, God is saying, and I belong to you too. I belong to you. I'm giving 100% of myself, I'm putting everything on the line in order to rescue you and being in relationship to you. But, and then now here's the call of the word, in order for our relationship to survive and thrive and flourish, there can't be any competing claims on either of our hearts. So I'm committing myself 100% of my heart to you. Will you do the same for me? That's the call of it, of this relational God. I'm committing everything to you. Will you commit yourself 100% to me? 
And you see God's calls like this actually all throughout the Bible, from Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, saying to the people of Israel, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? If, 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 God is, uh, if, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. To, to Jesus in Matthew 6, uh, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. The, the, the call of this word is fidelity and fidelity to God alone. Again, not because God is, has some immature, selfish need to be liked more and above everybody else, but because the character of God himself is faithfulness. He's a faithful God. He's a God who gives 100% of himself to those that he's in relationship with and therefore requires 100% commitment of us to him as well if we are to be in relationship with him and experience this, this fullness so, so, so that's why this word, what it reveals about the character of God. He's relational. He, he is a God who is faithful, and, and, and he, is, he is 100% committed to us in this covenant relationship he's made with us. And then, I think the way obedience to this word calls us into the fullness of life we're all seeking is the very same way that faithfulness to our earthly marriages creates joy, stability, fruitfulness in that relationship. I think there's a kind of a one-to-one parallel there. And man, I trust I don't even need to really kind of explain to this to you, like how, how devastating to flourishing in a marriage relationship, let alone to a family, it would be for a husband or wife to say to their spouse, hey, honey, you're my wife or you're my husband, and that's, I love you and that's never going to change. But you know, there is also this other person who I, I, I love as well. I also really care about them, and so some days, and maybe some nights, I'm going to spend time with them as well. Okay? Cool? Um, no, right? Like, not even for five seconds is that okay. So, so we, we all understand how that wouldn't work out. That, that's not going to work out. And the point is, in the same way fidelity in our earthly relationships creates the context where flourishing, joy, depth of connection is most likely to occur, so it is in our relationship with God the one by whom and for whom we were designed to be in relationship with. As David says in Psalm 16, he says, You, Lord, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what he's designed us for and what he calls us into and to experience in this first word. In light of that reality, I think the only question we need to consider by way of application is, Am I experiencing that fullness right now? Do I experience it? No, the question is not, am I following God perfectly? Uh, am I never tempted towards other gods? Or even to, to kind of wandering into times where, where I treat, I wrongly prioritize other things and kind of put them on the same level as God? I'm not, I'm not saying, do you never do that? I know you do, so do I. But, but are you seeing growth? Are you seeing fruitfulness? flourishing in your relationship with God right now, or are you not? And if not, why not? I think so often, sometimes we get stuck in, we, we can say, yeah, I don't feel like my relationship with God is strong right now, but we don't stop to kind of say, well, why is that happening? Is there anything that, that could be doing, I could be doing differently in order to strengthen that? So when, when, when we took, for instance, Jesus' hearing assessment, uh, a few weeks ago with the parable of the sower. We, how well am I hearing God? How well am I receiving what he says to me? How, what did it reveal? When you took that hearing assessment, what did it reveal? What have you done about that since then? If there was some kind of deficiency, have, have you done anything to change that or, or alter that? 
Because 100%, I, I think we see, we, we all see elements of like the hard path in, in our lives where, where the seed of God words, God's words, they remain on the surface, they don't penetrate into our heart and so they, they, they don't bring any transformation to us. I think we see elements of the rocky shallow soil uh, where the trials and tribulations we experience on account of being followers of God, on account of the word, it, it causes us to fall away, to not follow through on what we've promised. Even for those of us who are believers, even for those of us who would say, hey, the seed of the word is planted in me. I think we all see elements of that in our lives. But as it relates to this first word of God in particular, you shall have no other gods before me. I think the soil we're most in danger of getting caught in and keeping us perpetually unable to experience the fullness of life that God has for us is the thorny soil. The soil where the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out, in this case, not just fruitfulness, but our faithfulness. For when we allow even good things to be planted alongside God in our lives, when we ask him to share control of our lives with other things, we abandon fidelity. It's the exact same as that Spouse saying, I want to I share my time with these two people I love. We abandon fidelity when we do that. And as a result, we move further and further away from the very fullness that we're all seeking to find. Now, God is merciful. God is compassionate and gracious, slow to, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So if, like the prodigal son, we come to our senses, we, we recognize we've been unfaithful to God, what we'll find upon our return is not folded arms, but a father running towards us with arms wide open. That's the good news of the gospel. But I think the question as it relates to our fidelity to God, in particular, what he's calling us to, I think that needs to be one that we constantly refer back to. We need to keep coming back to, am I following this commandment? Do I have other gods that I've put in place of or, or alongside of you, God? Continue to ask ourselves that question. In fact, it was the great reformer Martin Luther who actually saw this first word as being primary among the ten. Uh, uh, not simply because it comes numerically first, but because as he saw it in keeping the first commandment, as he said it, keeping the other nine would almost certainly be the blessed result. When we have no other gods before us, we will not covet other people's things. We will not murder. We will not on and on and on because we have no other gods that are vying for the attention and affections of our hearts. I think he's right. My hope is that after all we've looked at here already, you're beginning to see, first of all, why we do a series on the Ten Commandments at all, uh, how these are still absolutely relevant and valuable for us still today, as well as how the, you, you, you're hopefully seeing how they reveal the nature and character of God, what he's like, as well as the pathway to the fullness of life that we're all seeking. For on the one hand, you've got this incredible, often missed reality that the foundation upon which the ten words are based is not judgment, but grace, not restriction, but freedom. Which, when you think about it, is actually like the exact opposite to that final scene from the movie Saving Private Ryan. You know, when Captain Miller's dying words to this soldier that he and his men had given his life in order to rescue was, earn this. We've done everything we can to rescue you. Now, earn this. It's the exact opposite here in the commandments because what we have is the God of the Bible. His message to people is, I've already earned it for you. 
I've done everything necessary. The price is fully paid. The cost is done. So now live life as I designed it to work and experience all the fullness of life I intended for you. And then God's statement of his fidelity, his his 100% commitment to you and to me, which he then calls you and I to join him in. Again, not to restrict our freedom, but to invite us into the context for which we were designed and in which fullness of life can truly be experienced. I honestly think that's why you see people all throughout the Bible, especially like in the Psalms, talking about how they love the law of God. Have you ever read that before and just been like, what? What's wrong with you? Um, it seems like people have either lost their minds or I don't know, maybe they're lawyers or something. I delight in the law. It's like sweet like honey to me. It seems, it sounds weird. What, I hopefully what you're already beginning to see is, I think the reason they talk that way is because they understand what the law of God actually is. They get it. It's the law of liberty. It's the law that calls us and invites us into freedom, invites us into fullness of life as God designed us to enjoy it. John 10.10, Jesus famously said these words, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Hopefully what you're seeing already from our time in the ten words is that that's not some brand new idea. That's not some revolutionary, revolutionary idea that Jesus kind of picked up and implemented in the New Testament. No, do you see it now? Actually, this is the heart of God for his people Right from the very beginning, come that you might have life and have it to the full. Here's how you get it. Amen. Amen. God, help us to be faithful to the one who has done everything first and then called us to live a life which will actually bring about fullness. Amen.